we know we've got less than 10 years. If by 2030, generally across the planet, we're not on a very significantly different low carbon trajectory from today, we're going to burn. You know, we, you and I know that we're heading for at least 2.9 degrees C of, of heating. This idea of an offset, which is you pay money for someone else to remove the carbon. But when you look hard at that offset concept, actually, it's a bogus concept. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't stack up. The Science-Based Targets Initiative has rightly come out and said to be credible in terms of net zero by 2040, you need to be off reducing at least 90 or 95% of today's footprint, not offsetting 10, 20, 30, 40%. The role of meat in our lives has fundamentally changed over the last few decades. And so, you know, meat acquired all this status and sense of value around it because it was the means by which we could live longer and healthier. That's so not the case anymore. And if anything, the opposite is the case. Well, hello and welcome to Building Better Business, the podcast that explores how business can shape our world for the better and how we can all play our part. In this episode, we're here to talk about the food industry and how it's tackling the issue of climate change, primarily focusing on the reduction of carbon dioxide emissions. By way of introduction, according to the UK Met Office assessment in May 2022, there's a 50-50 chance that global temperatures will overshoot what's been called the safe limit of 1.5 degrees, which I think most of us have heard about, in the next five years, so before 2027. And I think the recent reports are really saying that we, you know, the UK will fail to meet net zero. And I think within that, agriculture and food is a huge driver of uh, carbon emissions. And probably representing in the UK about 12%. So, you know, this is urgent and important and um, a, a real focus. Today, I am delighted and excited to have two incredible guests. First of all, I've got Mike Barry here, who's the former director of sustainable business at MS and who led on Plan A and now runs his own consultancy, Mike Barry Eco. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. And then to make my job even more difficult, I've got another Mike as well. So I'd like to introduce Mike Berners-Lee, who is a, an academic, a professor, a researcher, a consultant, a writer, amongst many things, I suspect, and um, has written such wonderful books as There Is No Planet B and How Bad Are Bananas? The Carbon Footprint of Everything. So welcome, Mike Berners-Lee. Thank you. Great. Well, wonderful to have you both here and to have your expertise. In terms of what we'd like to cover, I think it'd be great to start in a kind of general way, understanding the kind of overall position, trying to make people understand some of the jargon, get rid of some of that, and look at some of the uh, agreements and where we stand in terms of the progress that's been made. And then get into agriculture, the main issues that we're facing, some of the solutions, and then tackle things like offsetting versus reducing and also I think if we can get to the point where we're looking at emissions in terms of the ones that are directly within a company's control and then also indirect because there's quite significant differences but yet clearly the, the job here is to reduce carbon at great pace and with great substance. Mike Barry by way of introduction where are we in terms of the the agreements we've been making about this internationally and what we're looking to achieve? We're now at this sort of paradigm shift where for many years, individual food businesses, many other businesses have been focused on making themselves somewhat less bad each year. 2% less energy, 3% less plastic, 4% more human rights audits. Good stuff, but it's been swamped by the staggering pace of our 
our consumption, rising population across the world, and therefore our impact on, on the planet. And I'm always struck by, you know, the pathway that the mobility industry, the car industry has been on this, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, they were laughing at that thought of Tesla speeding past them, that people would ever adopt EVs, and look where we are now. Tesla worth thick end of a trillion dollars, more than all the other car companies on the planet put together. The same thing is going to happen to the, the food industry, partly because it's uniquely polluting, third of all greenhouse gas emissions, 40% of all calories produced on the planet don't reach a human mouth even when 800 million people go to bed every night starving. I mean, it's insanity. But there's another twist to what's happening with the food sector. It is uniquely vulnerable to the problem it causes. So what we've got is an industry that pollutes and is being impacted by rising heat, by wildfires, by flood, by drought. And again, we've seen it this summer as we struggle to sort of respond to the, the pressures placed upon the global food system by the conflict in the Ukraine, cutting us off from important breadbaskets. As we look across the planet, what's been happening is we've seen suppressed yields in Europe, in China, in India, in North America. Wherever we look, rising population, more mouths to feed, more challenged geopolitically, but it's much harder to actually get the food because of the, uh, the more extreme weather that we're causing. And the final point about the food system here that we need to be mindful of, it is uniquely difficult to decarbonize. So if I want to decarbonize the global car industry within reason, I reach out to 10 global car companies and drive change through them within reason. I want to change the world food system. Of course, it's dominated by a series of huge multinationals. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. But 600 million smallholders, many of them subsistence farmers, supporting themselves, some of them feeding into that global food system. To get them to shift on something that everybody consumes every day of their life. You know, MI5 has said that no modern society is more than four square meals away from insurrection. It is that much that we live on the, the sort of the cliff edge of the food system collapsing. So that, in summary, is where we're at. And right now, emissions are going up. And it's not just carbon emissions. I know we're going to focus on that. But biodiversity loss, forest loss, overuse of water throughout the food system. It has got a bleak scorecard and it's got a bleak pathway at this moment in time. But in summary, John, I think we're not in a great place with the food system right now. Mike Berners-Lee, what would your perspective be building on Mike's thoughts? I think I might possibly be able to be slightly more optimistic I, in, in one respect that you know, if, if you look at the human response to the climate change agenda as a whole, I mean, it's utterly pitiful. If you look at the carbon and dioxide curve from fossil fuel, uh, you can't really see any clear evidence in that at all that humans have noticed that climate change is an issue. You can see a, a big dent for a pandemic from which we've bounced back. You can see oil crises and financial crashes you, you know, if you, in the history of that curve, but you can't really see any clear evidence that we've noticed climate change, which tells us not that it's impossible, but it tells us we need so completely to raise our game and begin to have a system change that we haven't even really started yet. So if you look at the carbon curve, you know, it looks pretty daunting. And the question, you know, to ask the question, like, how is all the world's fossil fuel, because nearly all the world's fossil fuel has to stay in the ground, which means that's the Chinese fossil fuel, the Russian fossil fuel. You know, it's, a, it's an incredibly daunting challenge requiring a, some sort of global uh, understandings and arrangements that we seem, you know, we can't even stop being at war with each other at the moment. So you know, all that looks incredibly, incredibly difficult. If you look at the food system, it also looks incredibly difficult. And as Mike Barry says, you know, it's a huge part of the climate problem. It's also an even bigger part of the biodiversity challenge, which is just as important 
uh, as climate change, even though we don't talk about it as much. And just by the way, whilst dealing with it, we've got to make sure that everybody is fed, which we're not very good at at the moment. And that's looking more and more difficult as the population goes up. And as Mike said, you know, as the fertility of our land gets threatened by climate change and by the fact that we've been chucking so much pesticide and fertilizer on it that we've been trashing it. So hugely challenging. On the plus side, <laughs> uh, I think in some ways it's easier to make some of the changes we need to make. So for all the complexities in the, in the food system, I actually think the dietary change that would make an enormous difference looks a lot easier to do, to me, than leaving the fossil fuel in the ground. I think if you look at the UK, I think we're getting to the point where it's becoming accepted. More and more people are taking it on. Restaurants are changing. Even shops are starting to make plant-based diets more accessible. The, the media is catching on to it. The quality of that offering is starting to be tastier and healthier and more available. So I kind of feel as though the momentum for some of the change that we need looks more possible. And then you know, there are huge challenges around how to support the farming communities in order to be able to do the agriculture that they increasingly want to do, actually. So I sort of feel as though it feels a little bit less daunting than the fossil fuel, let's put it that way. I mean, in, in my world, I agree with your dietary point. If you look at the last 10 years in grocery, the, the, the acceleration in plant-based has just accelerated wonderfully, hasn't it? As yeah. a person who's been in food and drink all my life, you look at the grocery stores and, you know, it's quite remarkable the amount of space. You know, it's quite right. But also, as you say, the products are better marketed, they're better quality. And um, so there is, there's definitely some, some optimism and some shift there. If you're a fossil fuel energy company, then, you know, it's clearly a very big shift in your business model to go and do what has to be done for sustainability. If you're a restaurant chain or a supermarket chain, it's actually a much smaller kind of shift. It's a much, it's, I think it's a much fundamentally less challenging transition that you have to make. I think at the farming end of the debate, it's more challenging. Uh, Mike, just to build upon that, because again, as a shopkeeper or as a restaurant, in a sense, you don't care what you sell. Provided someone's coming into your shop or your restaurant to buy food from you, whether it's vegan, vegetarian or, or meat-based, within reason, you don't care. But I also think there is the immediacy of the food system, the immediacy of, you know, you buy a new car once every five or 10 years. You buy food every single day. And we live in this such noisy world that the ability of people to pick up the signals, the need for change, I think is just suppressed. So, you know, very simple statistics. About 5% of us vegetarian in the UK, 2% vegan, 3% pescatarian, so not eating red meat or lamb-based meat. 15% of us are flexitarian. So roughly 25% of the British population are on some kind of pathway to reduce a high-carbon meat-based diet at the moment. 75% are not. And I think the easy lifting has been done. I think the next 25% will be harder again, and then 50% beyond that, harder again. So I think good start, and I agree with you on the, on the fossil fuel models, but again, food is so diffuse. I mean, most of the oil system is pushed at you. Again, it's like the car industry. You need to regulate 10, 20 BP shells, Saudi Aramco's, good luck with that one. They're the people you need to control for that. I think the food system, because of the dietary choice part of it, is going to get more complicated. I think that's very interesting because I think I 
agree with the effects you're describing. But I hope, and I, I like to think that they're also counterbalanced by some other effects, which is the kind of normality of a plant-based diet. Now, so everybody, most of us, most of the time, like to be like everybody else. And it does feel weird. You know, you feel, it's awkward to be in a restaurant where there's nothing plant-based on the menu and asking for it. And if 25% of us are finding it normal, then it's no longer weird to ask for that thing. Now. Yeah. And so I, you know, I like to think that that momentum is ready to build. I think I would agree with that, Mike, if we have 20 or 30 years to steadily drive, shift through society and the way we consume. We know we've got less than 10 years. If by 2030, generally across the planet, we're not on a very significantly different low carbon trajectory from today, we're going to burn. You know, we, you and I know that we're heading for at least 2.9 degrees C of, of heating. There's been another study out this morning looking at 9,300 companies across the planet and how committed they are to climate action. And even taken from that, that subset of the global economy, which is the relative leaders, but they're still heading for 2.9 degrees. So I think we need to find ways to accelerate the steady uptake of a different diet and find a way to positively, not force people, but positively get there much quicker. Moving on a, a, a little bit, a lot of people talk about net zero. And so, you know, what does net zero mean? How are we doing with it? And is it, is it enough anyway? I mean, is it the right place to get to? Net zero means that the carbon emissions are equal to the carbon removals, so that the net amount of carbon or greenhouse gases better so, you know, is, is zero. And at the global level, it's a useful term. And roughly speaking, if we get to net zero, then you know, that's the point at which we can start bringing the carbon in the atmosphere down again. At the national level, it's a, it still has some use, I think, for, you know, for the UK, makes a sensible target, especially if we could include into that target the carbon that's embodied in our trade, because we import, uh, we, you know, we, we get a lot of our, our manufacturing and our, and our food production uh, overseas and imported into the UK. We should include that in our target, but still a useful concept. At the company level, it's actually a, it's actually a less useful concept in many ways, because the circumstances of every business are so completely different. So if, you know, if, you're, if you're a farm, you probably can't get it to zero, but you may have a whole chunk of land that you're able to sequester carbon with. You know, so it may be very easy to be net zero, so it's not so, it's not so useful a concept. If you're a steel manufacturer, and we're still going to need some steel in the sustainable world, less than we use now, but some, and you know, you'll never get that to zero. And unless you have this idea of an offset, which is you pay money for someone else to remove the carbon. But when you look hard at that offset concept, actually, it's a bogus concept. Yeah, it, it, mm -hmm. it doesn't stack up. Uh, so any targets that a company has around working towards net zero need to be at the very least split into two parts. The first thing is they need to be cutting their carbon on a steep trajectory that is in line with what the science says needs to be happening, which means eye-wateringly steep. And then if after that they decide they want to, to fund some good causes that manage land properly to do some things that are great for biodiversity and in the course of it removed some carbon as well, that's a great thing to be able to do. But you can't trade one against the other. No. And actually, if you're going to donate some money to a low carbon cause, then you might ask the question, actually, what's the 
what's the highest leverage thing I could do to bring about the low carbon world with my financial donation? And that might point you towards something like funding legal action on uh, yeah, something like climate earth legal action on climate change or something that might straighten out misinformation in the media or something like that. So actually your options might be wider again than, than just planting trees. Offsetting is no substitute for actually reducing, but unfortunately it is being used in that fashion, isn't it? Yeah, and actually there's some evidence that says that the, just the concept of offsetting plants the idea in people's head that somehow it's okay to have had the emissions in the first place. And I think it's, it's why the airlines are so keen, so often so keen on the concept, because they know that it will encourage more people to fly. So it's, a, it's actually actively unhealthy. Mike Barry? I work for a relatively small food business, MS, a very small business on a global scale. It sold several billion individual items to tens of millions of customers through several thousand shops, from several hundred food factories involving um, being supplied by many tens of thousands of farmers and raw material suppliers. Tesco's is six times bigger than MS in terms of food volumes. Walmart is probably 15 to 20 times bigger. You do the math. It's complex. You've also then got the additional problem in, in foods of what we're going to talk about later, scope one, two, and three emissions. And we all know that 80 or 90% of the footprint of the food system come from what's called scope three. There's farmers, the forests, the fields, the fisheries behind the scenes that produce your goods. Now, nation states, modern nation states, are signing up to net zero 2050 goals. That's what the UK has got. Good. The entire UK economy, 66 million people, and everything we do in that has got to be net zero by 2050. Many food companies now signing up to net zero 2040, the British Retail Consortium, the Zero Carbon Forum on behalf of hospitality, the National Farmers Union, the Food and Drink Federation on behalf of the food manufacturers. Good. 2040 is 17 years away. The Science-Based Targets Initiative has rightly come out and said to be credible in terms of net zero by 2040, you need to be reducing at least 90 or 95% of today's footprint, not offsetting 10, 20, 30, 40%, maybe 5%, maybe 10% at most. So every single one of those farms, raw material sources, food factories, shops, the consumers' uh, consumption of food has got to change radically in 17 years. And I think too many food companies, certainly a year or two ago, thought that they were going to offset the way out of this problem. Offset could be 20, 30, 40% of what we do. It ain't. It just doesn't stack up in terms of sort of keeping the, the within planetary boundaries. And I've lived within that food system. I know that typically margins within the reed sector, two or 3% profit margins. Hospitality the same. John, you know how challenging it is. To contemplate the radical upheaval of a system that lives just in time, right on the very edge of profitability against Ukraine and Brexit, pandemics and everything else that's happened, to contemplate a radical change in that right now is really hard, but that's what we need. And offsetting can only be a tiny, tiny, tiny part of that journey. Your conversation is making me move into scopes one, two, and three, because I think the differences and the importance of them is pretty paramount to this discussion, isn't it? And so for the listeners, if we can just define scope one, two, and three, and I mean, crudely speaking, give a feel for the percentage of a business in those areas. So who would like to just give everybody a feel for scope one, scope two, and scope three definition? Scope one emissions is the emissions that arise directly out of your business, including through the exhaust pipes of any vehicles that you own. Scope two is the emissions that arise directly through the generation of the electricity that you use. And scope three is everything else in your value chain. 
and you can divide scope three into upstream and downstream. So downstream is a sort of um, everything that happens to your goods and services after you've sold them. And that's methodologically very complex and muddy for most businesses. But scope three upstream, that's everything in your supply chains, goods and services, everything that you spend money on, uh, is essential to have an understanding of the carbon that's in that. It absolutely is your responsibility. And for the vast majority of businesses, it's absolutely where nearly you know, the vast majority of the carbon is. So, you know, 80 to 90%, that's kind of typical of most businesses. And going back a decade, uh, it was very common. You know, most businesses were saying, oh, yes, our supply chains are just too hard for us to influence. We can't possibly deal with that. And now, thank goodness, we've kind of, that battle has been won. And it's pretty well understood that your supply chain emissions absolutely do lie within your influence and are your responsibility to sort out. It takes me back to 2007 when we launched Planet MNX 15 years ago. We faced exactly this challenge. No one was talking about something called Scope 3, but we just recognised that that was where our main emissions were. And we did some basic heat mapping to say, look, you know, 80 or 90% of our food footprint is up in that supply chain. But it can't be about everything. We didn't have the capacity then to deal with everything. So we recognised it predominantly about meat, about food waste, about refrigeration, it's about forestry. Four things that if you crack, you take 70 or 80% out of that, of that complex scope three footprint. So we learned about prioritization. The second thing I would say is in the old paradigm, this world where I talked about, which is about being a little less bad, you'd send off an email somewhat snottily to your suppliers to say, look, you know, there's this new green thing, sort it out, and I'll pop around and audit you in a couple of years' time to see if you've done anything about it. Or while you're at it, cut your costs. Now the future is you cannot transform that value chain in the way that I was talking about a moment ago, 90% decarbonisation compared to today by sending a snotty email. You have to put an arm around the shoulder of your suppliers, food factories, food um, processors, right back to the raw material producers, smallholders and farmers, and actively support them on their journey. So the food companies that come out the other end of this great transformation, the ones that recognise that this is no longer about shouting at your supply chain to jump higher, it is about supporting them on this journey. It's almost creating this capacity building extension capability in there. And the final point about scope three is you literally, however good you are at creating that university of transformation, you will not do it on your own. Tesco's need to collaborate with Sainsbury's. Sainsbury's need to collaborate with M&S. Coke need to collaborate with Pepsi. If everybody's asking for different things in different ways, their lives matters. And then the final thing is obviously the policy system. I mean, we live in this atomized, leave it to the marketplace system, you know, and I'm, I'm a great supporter of the innovation that flows from capitalism, but there are some problems that will not be solved unless the market works with the policy system. And we've seen it with the ELM system in the UK, environmental land management system, that's the replacement for the common agricultural policy post-Brexit. And we're doing the hokey-cokey on it. We're going to do a big thing that we're not. Yes, we are. Farms are confused, the food system's confused, everybody's suffering in the current climate. We have to join up and have a 10, 15, 20 year vision of how we're going to transform the food system in partnership. Farmers, food factories, retailers and brands, and policymakers. That's the only way to change scope three. Listening to the conversation, I think there are two things that struck me. One is at one end of the supply chain, and the other is at the other, which certainly for, for us at, at Cafe Direct, we're very much, you know. Our job is to improve the livelihoods of smallholder farmers and the livelihoods and the environment in which they operate, the landscapes in which they operate. And 
as I think Mike Berners-Lee said at the outset, you're talking about millions of families who are, you know, not getting a fair income and not being helped to um, change behaviour in general terms, and who also, I think, are getting you know hit with the um, the outcomes of the, this situation much more aggressively. We try to bring that into into our home. We you know we have farmers on the board. We work very closely on a number of aspects in terms of diversifying income, so that you've got you know different ways of running your business rather than just you know monocropping. And you know all the all the kind of good things you can do. Where do you see the the actions with smallholder farmers? How do how do we tackle this very diverse, almost underrepresented? Well, definitely underrepresented community that has such a significant impact. I love what you do because you're one of the few businesses that fuse together ambition for the planet with ambition for people. Most net zero plans I see from big corporates coming out now, good. The words are there written on paper, net zero by 2040, 90% reduction in emissions Scotland, two, three, good. Needs to be done, but the ambition is there. For people, all I see is compliance, you know, no kids in my factories, no sort of child labor out, out there in the, the coffee fields. It's Billy basics. There is no sense of destiny to say we want to achieve something equivalent to net zero, but for people and communities. And again, just playing the political card for a moment, we will not take societies, electorates with us on this journey towards net zero, unless they can see the, the benefits for them, their families, their communities, as well as the Arctic, the Antarctic in 20 or 30 years' time. So I would challenge any big business to make their net zero plans far more human-centric in the way that you've just outlined and put people at the heart of it. And people who are motivated don't just comply with the letter of the law that go beyond it to find solutions that you and your glass box in, never, in London can never find out. People in the coffee plantations now to grow coffee, not you. But you need to take it from being a grudging compliance issue for them to something that said this is about better outcomes, better coffee, better tasting coffee, better margins, better results for your workers and for you as well. Thank you very much. We're in it together and we're le leading ourselves through it together, aren't we? In, in hot beverages, a large amount of the carbon is, is very much at that end of the, the supply chain. It's a bit. I mean, people often latch onto the bits of the, of the emissions that they can sort of most easily imagine. So the, you know, the energy right. that's being used on your machine or, you know, at your cooker or, or, or the yeah. transport miles because you can, you can visualise them so easily. Actually, the, the big deal is almost is usually going on in the field itself. But I mean, I think in terms of you know how we, you know how we get the change, we've got to tackle this from all angles at once. So you know, I think there absolutely is a consumer angle to this through simple dietary choices and so on. Uh, you know, that's part of it. There are you know within industry there is a whole side to making that consumer decision easier, make it appetising, suggesting it, normalising it, and all of that. And supporting the supply chain, you know, as well. There's undoubtedly a kind of government in the UK, you know, for sure. There's undoubtedly a government support angle to it that has to be put in place. And I think, in some ways, you know, I, and I don't have the same level of contact that that Mike has had or experience, or, or that either of you two have uh, of international small producers, especially. But certainly, I know in the UK, you know, they are you know, the, the 
individual farmers are some of the, in a way, they're some of the most powerless groups in this. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure it's the same overseas. And yeah, but there are so many farmers in the UK who absolutely want to do the right thing by the land for sustainable diets and you know, for a sustainable food system. And we just need to give them the opportunity to it, to do that. And, then, you know, and there's two things they need. First of all, the science of what is actually the right thing to do is not yet bottomed out. So it's very hard for a farmer to know whether they should have cows on their field or just rewild it, or whether they could be growing a human edible crop or what. And if so, how, what kind of rotation to do? How do you do without so much fertilizer? All those questions are still very hard to nut out. And then once you've done it, it needs to be possible to have a business model to do the right thing. And that absolutely needs some funding support. The other challenge about farming in the whole food system is location dependent. Within reason, Swapping a diesel car to an electric car will have the same benefit globally, albeit we know there's different grid averages, but eventually they'll sort of align. Every farm is unique. Every soil is unique. And telling, telling tens of thousands of British farmers to say, you must all adopt the same approach for all your farms, is utterly wrong. And we need a much more sophisticated approach, not just in government circles, but in business circles, to recognise that diversity of practice to deliver the same outcome, much lower carbon farming, much less impact for farming than today. We're just starting to work with a, a local farm up here in Cumbria. And within that one farming estate, there are at least five categories of land, all of which need a bespoke, unique analysis on what is the right thing to do. And you know, some of it is around, there's one bit of land that's around, it's kind of wild land and it's around, is it, is, should it have any livestock on it at all or should it just be a restored peat bog there's another piece of land that has a rotation of human edible crops and should and can that be that rotation be changed to do, to do away with the fertilizer then there's some salt marshes i mean there are at least five really nutty problems just for one farm it brings to life the point that mike's making I mean, it's not a homogenous one solution apply it to the whole kind of situation we touched on consumers and I remember being at a sustainability conference, I think it was about seven or eight years ago, where you know, a leading uh, restaurant chain was saying, well, we don't, we don't offer plant-based because our consumers don't want it and consumer is king. And we were, you know, we were along with a number of other people. And I remember a very young a, a student from a university very much, very passionately going, well, you have a responsibility to, to lead consumers. What is the right position for a company and what's what's the approach that a consumer can take? That's two questions in one. So let's start last at the basics here. 70% of people in virtually every marketplace in the world are saying they're somewhat or very concerned about the climate crisis or want something to happen about it significantly. But they predominantly look at big business and big government to make it easy for them. Because again, I work for a small retailer in MS. MS sells about six or seven thousand food lines. I'm guessing Tesco's 30, 40, 50,000, you know, somebody else might sell 100, 200,000. If I have to look at a label on every product in a 10 minute shop while I'm worrying about the kids and I'm worrying about the cost of food that I'm putting in the basket, we're going to get nowhere. We need to shift to a different paradigm. So, two thoughts. One is that we need to remove bad choices as business and government. So, we have to be much bolder saying there are certain products that are just disproportionately impactful and have no significant pathway to decarbonisation. We need to remove them from the marketplace. 
The second thing we need to do is, and, and, and I'll sort of back up the work that Tesco's are doing here. Tesco's turned around to all its suppliers, all its products, and said, you need to decarbonize. And to be on our shelves in the future, we need to see significant progress in what you're doing. I, as the consumer stepping into a Tesco store, don't need to look at all these different labels because I know that Tesco's are taking away the bad choices automatically. And then every single other Tesco supplier is on the pathway to being in a much better place. Good. The third part of it, then, you need to inspire. So Tesco's and a lot of the other retailers are doing much more now to encourage people to try plant-based, trying lots of different techniques to do it. They're coping best with significant sums of money to bring the cost down of plant-based to be the same as meat-based. And Tesco's used something called Better Basket, where it encourages people to each month in, in trial stores to look at a certain number of exciting new products that are better for their health and better for planetary health as well. Good. So there are lots of different ways in that pyramid, starting from removing the bad choice, all suppliers on the pathway to decarbonize, bringing, surfacing new ways of consuming food to the surface as well. And then you've got this point about labeling. And I know Michael have a view on this at the moment. There's been lots of trials going on, not just in the UK, but across mainland Europe as well, looking at different ways of communicating environmental and more specific carbon impact of food. And I've just said, I don't think stacking a label on every single product is going to help. But I think with modern technology, and I keep coming back to this, you can start to build a digital platform that said, I can go onto my favorite food ordering website, and there are many, so we'll pick anybody out in particular, and I can put preference in. Do not show me products that contain palm oil, because I'm worried about deforestation, or single-use plastic, because I hate the fact it becomes waste, or don't show me high-carbon products. So anything that's got a red on one of your labels, I then just have six or 7,000 bad products removed from my eyeline, and I choose from many tens of thousands of other food products, good products. I'm not looking at labels myself. I'm using this digital tool to screen away the bad things. So I think we've got to reimagine how we make decisions about food in partnership with the consumer, using new tools to do it. Yeah, I really like that idea of, of the being able to select to, to screen out certain uh, or screen in certain types of food. I think I think that's powerful. I think any labeling on the product itself needs to be kept uh simple for sure i do think that the food industry uh at, at retail and at manufacturing is a point of you know has a, a real point of influence so you know a few years ago i used to be getting sort of told this storyline from from food retail that oh well you know we just have to give we have to give customers what they what they want we have to follow the market that's such a such a dereliction of of, of responsibility there you know Supermarkets are masters of of suggestion and choice editing, and they know exactly how to persuade to to make a customer twice as likely to buy one thing as to another. And so there's there's huge leverage opportunity here. I mean, just making sure that the you know the the main meal protein choices contain a really good choice. Make sure that the first thing you encounter is plant based. Make sure it's absolutely delicious and appetizing, and so on. All that is so doable. And with you know we're working with a restaurant chain at the moment that is you know it's going crazy doing that kind of stuff and it's business opportunity. There's what's not to like about making your plant-based options mouthwatering. And in food manufacturing as well, interestingly, we worked with two ice cream manufacturers that had quite similar business models. 
one of them couldn't bear the thought of ice cream without berry in it. They just thought that's how ice cream has to be. The other really got their head around it. They're going like a house on fire and their, their plant-based ice cream turns out to be fantastic. So I think there's lots of opportunity there. And I think I just want to make this one broad point about the finances in all this, which is that it is fundamentally much, much more efficient to provide new plant-based nutrition than to provide animal-based nutrition. So somewhere along the line, there's an economic opportunity, whoever it gets distributed to. Whether it's that, it's the supermarket that ends up increasing its margin, or it's that affordable food, it becomes easier to provide affordable food on people on tight budgets, or whether it's that the margin goes to the food manufacturers or the farmers themselves, or does it go to the government in the, or whatever, somewhere, somebody has a margin opportunity because the efficiency improvement is so massive. And it's been a fantastic discussion. I think not only has it helped to bust some of that jargon stuff, but it's been interesting to really get a feel for the scale of the issues and the problems, but also the capacity to make change and make change at quite a systematic level. So thank you both very much. Mike Barry, what are your two or three last thoughts? I mean, the big point just says there's lots of reasons why the food industry right now in the middle, coming out of the pandemic, Ukraine, cost of living things. We'll come back to this next year, the year after, maybe. And I just point back to everything we should learn from the pandemic in Ukraine. 2014, Putin invades Ukraine, and we all sit there thinking, oh, they'll stop there, won't they? And we all knew he never would, but we kicked the tin down the road and hoped he wouldn't, and he did. Same with the pandemic. 2017, the UK government does a national risk assessment, the greatest risk to the UK society and the economy. The number one risk by country mile is a pandemic. Our response to it in 2020 was pitiful because we, we had put that onto a shelf. The same thing's happening now with the food system. We know the food system is not, I'm not going to use the word collapse because that's, that's very emotive, but is under desperate strain. We know it and we're avoiding facing into it as business leaders, politicians, etc. So that's my first point. The food system is under huge pressure now from the climate crisis that it is contributing to and is uniquely vulnerable to. My tactical point, and again, I've alluded to it briefly, but I'll bring it together, data and digital. I work for a small business. I went grey of hair trying to track and trace these billions of items from billions of tens of thousands of locations with a pen, paper, spreadsheet, and basically an abacus. With big data, with AI, with remote sensing, I can start to do what Mike's talking about, which is go to each individual farm and make a decision about each individual field and give packets of information to consumers that are useful about each individual product they, they buy. The food businesses that embrace data and digital to do both supply chain management and consumer engagement win. Mike Berners-Lee, what, what are your final thoughts on this? I think I just want to emphasise again one point that's come up a few times on this podcast just because it's so massively important. So for all the complexity of the food system, there is one thing that is so important and so clear, which is that, you know, and whether you want to feed the world or look after our biodiversity or deal with climate or support Ukraine and keep Putin in check, or if you care about even animal welfare, or if you care about human disease threats, you know, for any of these perspectives, it's the biggest thing we can do is to reduce the amount of meat and dairy in our diets by a very long way.
And, and it's good for our health as well, isn't it? I mean, I think um, we can all be choiceful. I mean, we can be very choiceful about where we work and we're very choiceful about what we do or don't consume every day. It's easier said than done, isn't it? But the great thing is, and I think one of you said it earlier, the the choice has improved no end. I mean, it's now very clear that you can have plant-based meat or animal-based meat, you, you know, and, you, and you've got that choice. The role of meat in our lives has fundamentally changed over the last few decades. So 100 years ago, for most people in the UK, for example, if you wanted to put one extra thing into your diet to help you live longer and healthier, it'd be meat because it contained so many of the human essential nutrients that you might be lacking. And so, you know, meat acquired all this status and sense of value around it because it was the means by which we could live longer and healthier. That's so not the case anymore. And if anything, the opposite is the case. So the kind of fundamental underlining driver but through which meat and dairy, you know, uh, became such an attractive thing has gone. It's historic, it's obsolete. And now that's one reason why I think why we're so ready for that transition. It's been wonderful to see you again, Mike Barry, as always. And um, it's really been great to spend some time with you, Mike Berners-Lee. Great to see you. Thank you for your help. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners for joining. And do head to the Cafe Direct website and find this episode if you'd like to learn more about some of the topics discussed. And please make sure you rate and subscribe on the listening platform you use, as it really does help us to spread the word about the podcast.